My first recollection of television golf is a Masters on black and white TV. When I was 12 or so, I followed my father around a course on what for him was a very rare outing. In high school, I played with friends a few times, using borrowed clubs, but none of us knew what we were doing. In 1964, I was eligible for the military draft. Unless I volunteered for a branch of the service, the government would make the choice for me. Rather than wait for fate to intervene, I selected the Air Force. It seemed to be the least risky, and the Air Force offered a technical education. After training, I was stationed in Newburgh, New York, near West Point. My job was to test and maintain radio equipment. After a year or so, I volunteered for international duty to see the world and to assure that I had adventure and new experiences during my enlistment. In early 1967, I transferred to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. However, I soon learned that Clark was only a way station and that I would frequently be redeployed throughout Southeast Asia. My unit, the 1st Mobile Communications Squadron, mission was to prepare and install radio equipment in stationary camouflage vans at air bases in Thailand, Korea, and Vietnam. The radios provided the talking link from ground controllers to the pilots. Before I could be sent to install the vans, I had to attend and graduate from Jungle Survival School. Tribes of Negritos living near the base were used in a two-day overnight exercise designed to sharpen our escape and evasion skills. They stood less than five feet tall, wore loincloths, and used primitive tools and weapons. During World War II, they slit the throats of the Japanese invaders. If and when they captured us, they were given bags of rice as a reward. Most of us were rounded up in spite of an hour head start into the jungle. After graduation, we installed and operated vans at sites across Southeast Asia. Some of the vans were assigned to new bases and others to replace vans that had been damaged in attacks. I spent my last six months in Vietnam. The Viet Cong were mixed into the population and anyone could be an attacker. Hand grenades were tossed in the living quarters. Rocket attacks and snipers were always a threat. Body bags of those killed in action were often loaded onto aircraft a few feet from our communication van. In February 1968, the Viet Cong launched the Tet Offensive. It was a nightmare come alive and fear brought to life. A rocket hit the barracks next to ours, killing and wounding many. The random nature of the rockets and the thundering impact, smell and noise had everyone terrified. I frantically tried to find a safe place. The rockets continued to hit the base at random times and to random targets. A change of a few, on, a few feet on the trajectory and many of us would have been killed in a flash. We slept in a bunker made of sandbags. Only a direct hit would destroy our cave. I was lucky, and aside from scraped knees and elbows, I emerged physically fine, but emotionally crippled. In April, I returned to the Philippines. 
Even in a safe haven, my nerves were on adrenaline. My assignment was to relax and be available if called. The base golf course served as my escape. It was adjacent to the Negrito Village and Jungle Survival School, where new classes were preparing replacements for those fortunate few like me that were headed home. Filipino caddies were available, a caddy called the Wild Chicken and I became friends. He was serious about his name. It has something to do with the wild chicken's survival instincts in the jungle. He played occasionally and helped me with the basics of the swing. Our frequent outings were unhurried, and I learned the fundamentals with his help. His friendly manner fueled my passion and interest in the game. We talked a lot, and his caddy friends always had something to say. I loved the camaraderie. His grasp of the rules was astute, and penalty enforcement was rigid. His loud shout of one when I whiffed a tee shot still makes me laugh. He was genuinely sad when one of my shots collided with a bird flying across a fairway. In spite of the impact and lost feathers, the bird recovered and was soon gone. The wild chicken was my basic golf training instructor. He taught me how to play, respect for the rules, subtleties of the game, and to focus my passion for the game through a lighthearted lens. I was discharged in California in June 1968. Much had changed in the 15 months I had been gone. The war and murders of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy had helped induce a chaotic mood in the country. I needed stability in my good job to start my new life. About a year later, I married the girl of my dreams, Sparky, now my wife of 51 years. My Air Force training opened the door to a big company. I've had a rich, full life, blessed with good health, career success, great kids, terrific grandkids, and a passion for the game. I realize now that much of my success came from the balanced golf offered during the years of striving to build a career. It has helped soothe my nerves as a release from business pressure and sustain my soul over the wonderful wonderful years. Scores are a small part of the experience. The essence of the game is about striving to get better, laughing, stories, and friendships. Exactly the same ingredients that fuel my love of the game and my friendship with a wild chicken. Our friendship changed my life, and I treasure the experience. His counsel and kindness were special. I hope he has lived a long, happy life, plays well, often, and laughs out loud every day. When I returned to the United States... I moved to Buffalo. That's where Sparky and I were married in 1969. We moved to Syracuse for four years. And in spite of our growing family, Sparky let me play on Saturday mornings. 
I had a very bad boss, and it was a torturous job working for him. But golf helped me get past that and keep my career on track. We moved to Rochester in 1977 and moved on again in 1983 to Corning, New York. While in upstate New York, my playing experience in Rochester was at Marvin's, which we nicknamed Starving Marvin's, and I developed friendships for life while we were there. I had an opportunity to play Oak Hill, but stupidly did not ask a member who was my mother's uncle to take me on the course. I was about a 10 handicap in those days, and my tournament experience was highlighted by a member guest tournament with my dear friend and first cousin, Ken. We were really on fire in the tournament, and only a few gaffes prevented us from winning. The gaff was mine. After I missed a 24-inch putt or thereabouts, and it went a couple inches past the hole, I don't think it hit the hole, I hit the ball off the green. The fellow we were playing with was quite full of himself as a reigning club champion, and I can still hear him saying, you can't do that. Well, I guess I said something witty like, well, I just did that. Now what? And I think he's doing the numbers in his head and said, these turkeys are going to take like a six because that jerk couldn't make a two-foot putt. In any event, I wound up taking a five, and we finished second, but it is etched in our memories about how an elite golfer can be taken down by a lucky recreational golfer making a few putts and still having a good time while they're at it. When I was in Corning, I played in a member guest with Beth Daniel and joined the Corning Country Club, a very nice place, a company town and a company golf course. It was a good experience tied into playing at local public courses, one of which, Indian Hills, was built by people I knew with bulldozers. The same could be said for the Bath Country Club, where I played a great deal with my dear friend Carl and many member guests. It's also where an epic shift in my career path was generated by an innocent question by my vice president to my wife when he was playing in the member guest at a dinner. I had excused myself and gone to the bathroom or something. In any event, during that pause, he asked Sparky how she liked living in Corning and Painted Post. And she said, I hate it. Get me out of here. He was really taken back. And he told her that he had us penciled in for five years to run the account and then move on. Well, in any event, I learned when we got home, when she confessed that I told Carter to get me out of here. Bear in mind, we had been there about a year. And life was good on the Finger Lakes and the Great Country Club. And the account was manageable, although it was not going to be a uh, strategic account. And with that said, after I hit my forehead a few times, wouldn't you know it, my vice president called a few months later and said, I want you to come down 
move to White Plains and take over the UPS account. Well, now how did that impact my life? Well, you're about ready to hear. When we lived in Connecticut, I played on most Saturdays with a group of UPS guys, and that outing turned out to become a bedrock of lifelong friendships with many from UPS. UPS subsequently moved to Connecticut, and AT&T moved me to Atlanta, where I am now, and we have been in Atlanta almost 30 years. I joined the Horseshoe Bend Country Club, played with my UPS friends and others, and enjoyed the membership for 14 years. Many fun memories of member-member tournaments and the first ones off on Saturday morning, and the particular shots that we hit over all those times have very sweet memories indeed. That same group went off to Scotland. We played all the name courses, and later on, my son and I played at Bally Bunyan and La Hinch in Ireland. After I left Horseshoe Bend, after being a member for 14 years and made a local move, I played at Echelon, one of the longest courses in Atlanta. That course was tough, and it was very hard as one is beginning to age into the 70s. I also started to play at Hampton Golf Village and have played there for many years. It is there that I have met many, many friends and wonderful people who are high on golf and love for the game, soft rules, wonderful stories, and chances to win at every event hosted by our leader, William Carter. He is, in fact, a miracle man and the group size has evolved over the years, given passings and moves and other issues. From about 70 to 100 players, he organizes everything. The rules include moving the ball to a better lie, a safe lie, and it's absolutely wonderful. I have many, many stories from my experience at Hampton Golf Village. One of those is befriending Ralph Johnson, who played on the PGA Tour in the early 70s. He's very grounded and very authentic and was always kind enough to offer without being asked to take me over to the short game green because he said things like, Bob, you're almost on the par five and two and you made a seven. You just can't do that. I'll always remember that. And then he gave me the name Long Ball which is about as sweet as it gets. Thank you, Ralph, for your friendship. I began a grassroots movement in Atlanta to help the blind and low vision into golf in the spring of 2015. With the help of the Georgia State Golf Association and a generous donor, Dave Windsor moved to Atlanta from Florida and energized the adaptive golf program. We have worked together to help thousands access and enjoy the game in Georgia and in other locations around the United States. For three years, I was United States Adaptive Golf Alliance Outreach Leader, 
and help to grow that organization as a leader in disabled golf tournaments and generally positioning access for the disabled with golf's governing bodies. I am currently the Veterans Outreach Director for the Georgia State Golf Association and the Adaptive Golf Association. There are many, many more stories that will be featured on upcoming podcasts. Thank you for your time and listening. I hope you enjoy this narration.